everyone, and welcome once again to Crowning Around, a podcast where three regular everyday plebeians attempt to learn about the royal family through the best resource that we have, and that is, of course, the critically acclaimed Netflix series, The Crown. My name is Sam Chung, and today we'll be talking about Season 1, Episode 3, which is entitled Windsor. As always, I am joined today by my two wonderful co-hosts. First, a guy who may or may not be shopping around for a 10,000-pound allowance, Ivan Vukovic. Ivan, how are you? I'm doing well. Always a pleasure, Sam. Thank you. How's that 10,000 pound allowance going? Uh, adjusted for inflation to $2020, it, it should actually take good care of me. So I, <laughs> I'm very much gunning for it. Good luck with that. And next, a woman who wants some justice for all the pugs out there, Carlin Greenwald. Carlin, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking, Sam. It was quite a, um, a roasting that pugs got in this episode. That was so sad to me. Like, <laughs> I genuinely love pugs. And so it was like, I'm trying to pick a side here. And then the moment that David Edwards starts talking about how he loves pugs, I'm like, oh, oh no, (laughs) this is a conflict for me. For sure. As always, um, before we get too deep into this podcast, we have to disclaim right off the bat, if you came to this podcast because you want to learn whether or not the events that happened in the show are real about you want more information about the historical accuracy of um, you know what happened or you are just a, a big fan of the royal family and you want us to really sing their praises you've really come to the wrong place because we know none of that information and we're American as you can probably tell by our accents so you know that's not the podcast you're going to get we are purely basing everything that we know about the royal family uh, at least in this era from what we have seen on screen in the crown. Yeah, not much else for you there. So to get us kicked off, uh, we just want to start with a quick recap of season one, episode three. And Ivan, do you want to just tell us really quickly what happened in this episode? Yeah, so a lot happened in this episode. Uh, It was was quite action packed. Um, It all more or less, however, coalesces around uh, uh, the former King Edward, uh, Bertie's older brother, who uh, back in 1936 abdicated the throne, uh, which led to Bertie becoming king. Um, And his reason for doing so is that he wanted to be able to marry uh, an American uh, socialite and divorcee, Wallace Simpson. Um, And following the abdication, you know, he wasn't strictly speaking excommunicated from the royal family, but uh, kind of went into exile, um, living elsewhere outside of the United Kingdom um, and uh, having a uh, tenuous relationship with the remainder of the family at best. Um, so uh, a former King Edward uh, comes to London for his uh, brother's funeral um, in present day, which I I think we're still in 1951 here. Um, And it's during this time uh, that uh, a whole lot of family drama gets stirred up, uh, both involving um, what happened back then and also some of the more pressing issues of here and now, uh, which uh, for Elizabeth um, uh, entails a couple of things. Uh, The first of which is that uh, she and Philip are... um, kind of hell-bent on staying in Clarence House, which is the uh, mansion that they have been renovating and expected to live in. Uh, They do not want to move to Buckingham Palace as is tradition for the uh, sovereign to reside in. Um, And then on top of that, uh, there is also uh, the even more kind of ego-driven issue around the family name. Uh, Now, Philip and his uh, family, the Mountbatten's, expect that uh, the royal family will, moving forward, 
forward uh, carry the Mountbatten name for all of uh, you know the children and descendants uh, that uh, go beyond that. Um, whereas um, everybody else is in a, is a, insistent that uh, Elizabeth continues to enforce the Windsor name um, on the royal family chain moving forward, which uh, brings up uh, a lot of drama. And uh, Winston Churchill himself is actually very deeply embedded into all of these kind of negotiations, and he uh, works hand in hand with the former King Edward to influence Elizabeth and try to get her to embrace uh, tradition and not uh, deviate from it in these ways that are uh, considered a bit controversial. Um, on top of that, um, I think we had a couple of subplots, uh, the kind of sort of silliest of which is, you know, Philip, who, you know, aside from being frustrated on all of these really um, kind of more uh, uh, pressing matters, um, is all of a sudden really excited about taking flying lessons. Uh, and he goes to uh, Peter Townsend, uh, who uh, we know, of course, Princess Margaret is having an affair with to uh, be hooked up with flying lessons. So um, yeah, that that's kind of uh, the premise and uh, of this episode. Um, in the end, um, you know, essentially tradition wins over. Um, Elizabeth is going to, um, you know, pass the Windsor name on to her children. Um, and in addition to that, they all move into Buckingham Palace at the close of the episode. Um, Edward, um, you know, comes to the UK and, uh, you know, again, has very icy relationship with everyone and leaves um, getting the uh, one thing that he really wanted for himself, which is this uh, continued um, allowance, uh, presumably uh, British, pax, uh, British uh, taxpayer dollars that are funding his uh, lavish lifestyle that he and his uh, wife are enjoying in New York and Paris and, and other places. So yeah, uh, a lot of family drama happening in this episode, um, you know, kind of sidestepping away from some of the more um, impactful matters for the country and, and the royal family and really just getting down to the pettiness that we're all uh, here for. Yeah, and you can you can both feel free to disagree with me, but I really enjoyed this episode, and I think the reason why is that we started to see these people starting to play a little bit more political chess, where in the first two episodes, it was kind of like we were watching people play checkers. Like, Anthony Eden attempting to, you know, get Winston Churchill out of there. It's like, come on, dude, that's never going to work. But here we see uh, David Edward. We don't really, we haven't really come to a conclusion on what we want to call him yet, but we saw him making a deal with Winston Churchill. Then we saw him turning around and making a deal with Elizabeth. So we got a lot more of those kind of political dynamics that are what make me love other shows like Succession or, you know, Game of Thrones, any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was definitely uh, a much soapier episode uh, than the previous two. Um, just a lot of, you know, maneuvering and, uh, you know, not quite backstabbing, but definitely, you know, people trying to manipulate others into helping them get what they want. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I feel like this episode, we also start to get a sense of like, you know, the what Queen Mary been talking about previously of like this Elizabeth Windsor is going to be fighting with like Elizabeth the Queen and like what her different wants and how they're going to play into tradition. And so like, I love that they start doing that right off the bat. And you're like, oh, wow, look at look at Elizabeth being so conflicted. I love it. Absolutely. So obviously, the big overarching plot point of the episode is that, you know, Liz is now going to become the queen and she's starting to learn about what her royal duties are going to entail. But the real star of this episode, I think, has got to be David, formerly King Edward, who kind of opens up the episode with his abdication 
he's really, you know, the star of the episode, in my opinion. Uh, what what are our thoughts on um, David here? I mean, this is his episode, um, you know, love him or hate him. Um, you know, we kind of get uh, a lot of things told through his perspective here. Um, and he has, again, a tenuous relationship with the family um, at best, but it seems to kind of oscillate between, um, you know, him trying to do what's best for him and also him trying to do what's best for everyone. Sometimes those goals overlap, sometimes they don't. And um, it, it's it was very interesting to see him try to navigate, you uh, you know, the affairs of this family that he has, you know, barely one foot uh, in the door of still. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I am so ready to get like down and dirty. Like whose <laughs> team are you on? Are you on team David or team queen mother? Because, oh man, they were ready to like duke it out. <laughs> no, it's so great. And yeah, no, for sure. Like David has gotten so much dimension in just one episode already. It'll be interesting to see like if he ever pops back or like anything else that happens with him because they really packed a punch with him. He was just in there. You get his vibe. Yeah, that's such a tough, a tough question that you pose because I love them both and for very different reasons because they're just they're such big personalities. It's like how can you not love them both? Um, David to me is just like such a man child. Like how is. <laughs> The things that come out of his mouth, I just listen to them and I'm like, how are you a 60 year old man saying these things? He's, he's, you know, going around calling his mom, mummy, crying about his 10,000 pound allowance. You know, I just, this man, craziness. So let's talk about that 10,000 pound allowance here for a second. <laughs> so uh, I think we have, you know, vowed not to necessarily do any research uh, about the royal family outside of what we're learning from the show. Uh, but I did want to crunch those numbers. So, you know, 10,000 pounds a year in, um, I guess this is, I said 1951, we're actually in 1952 now. Um, so adjusted for inflation uh, to uh, 2019, I think was the most recent year I could pull. Um, that is well over. 300,000 pounds, um, uh, which is over 400,000 uh, USD. So this guy who, 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 like in certain parts of the episode makes it sound like he's having trouble paying the bills, is actually living a very lavish lifestyle that I would imagine even some of the most fringe members of the royal family, um, you know, can't even necessarily maintain nowadays. Um but yeah, he is he has not much to complain about. And and he's been collecting this allowance for, you know, a good 15 years now. Like, dude, like you could have saved, you could have invested, you could have set aside some of that and and become financially independent. But instead, it seems like he's been squeezing every last bit of that money um, uh, out and uh, spending it and now, um, you know, facing the daunting prospect of being cut off. But yeah, knowing how much money that is, like, I, I do not feel bad for him. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, like those pugs are cute and all. We know that I am pro pug, but no pug needs 400,000 <laughs> US dollars a year. Well, that's also not taking into account his um, his wife has some income as well. So that's really only half the income that they have. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because she's also a prominent Amer uh, a prominent figure in American society. Yeah. I mean, uh, they just needed to get a better financial planner, which they didn't because, yeah, 15 years of getting, you know, over four hundred thousand dollars a year like that's seed money. You, you could have done something with that. And he clearly didn't. 
Yeah, it's interesting. There was that one scene where wasn't David being like booed by the British people? I loved that. <laughs> and it was like, you're like, oh, why? You're like, oh, you know, do they really hate him that much? And now that you crunch the numbers, I'd be pretty bad about that too. Oh my God. So David's obviously in a tough situation because he's been forced to abdicate the throne because he is in love with Wallace Simpson, who is, I guess, a divorcee. So she is, you know, clouded in scandal of divorce. And this feels like a bit of an archaic rule. I don't know if there's other circumstances. We were really only kind of shown that one circumstance is what led to his eventual abdication. But um, it's definitely a tough situation for him, a tough pill to swallow. It's so interesting because like I was spending the entire episode going like, do I really feel bad for this man on any level? And I was thinking like, okay, you really want to marry this girl. The whole idea of not being able to marry someone who has been divorced is like kind of ridiculous. And I think it even was maybe not like back in the third, maybe not back in like the 40s or 30s whenever he did abdicate. But like it's at least by most standards, like even in the 50s, like I think that was still something where it's like, oh, I don't think that's totally necessary. But that I was just like, I was trying to think of, okay, did he actually have to abdicate or did he choose to in order to marry Wallace? Like, he literally had to make some choice here. It's like, okay, technically speaking, <laughs> he wanted to sort of like have his cake and eat it too, where it was like, oh, you know, you get the benefits of being sovereign and like that's ultimately like money and resources and all that. Like, if he loved her so much, why is he so bitter? about not getting this allowance like it's sort of interesting to think like can you still completely love someone and like can you say that this came from like a place of pure like you know just like tragedy of the lovers or were like are they trying to show us in the show that like he he's it was also for other reasons that he was kind of mad about it like i don't know it's very well, interesting it also raises some questions uh going back to even just like the fundamental you know, larger question of like, what is the point of the monarch of the royal family? So th there's all these, you know, rules and traditions, whether it's not being able to marry a divorcee, whether you have to live in Buckingham Palace, whether you have to pass along a certain family name or not, like, who else but the sovereign should be able to call those shots? Like, I, I mean, if I were, you know, in their seat, I would just change the rules, I would change the traditions. Like, it, it, it seems like, you know, if you can't do that, what can you do as ruler? Because it, it seems like all your like, you're not really calling the shots at all. You're just listening to what all these other divide, uh, you know, advisors and and political figures are whispering in your ear. And you know, it it again just kind of brings up the fundamental question of like, what's the point of even having a a sovereign when they have so little power that they can't even augment some of these silly traditions. Yeah, and this is ultimately what really puts David in a tough position because he has to then choose whether he's going to continue to hold the title of king and I guess be unhappy and not be with the woman that he loves or he's going to abdicate and then eventually be blamed for the death of his brother multiple times <laughs> by his mom who's very, very salty at him. So yeah, it's definitely a tough situation that seems like, you know, not a big deal at the end of the day yeah i swear they have a lot of anxiety that family because like i think when you get down to like what queen mother and queen mother mother 
Mary. Like, it seems to be just from this sense that they think that, like, if you do a single thing, not the way they did for, like, 200 years, that, like, the entire monarchy could collapse. And it's kind of interesting to think, like, would that actually happen? Like, if... So, like, moving... segueing over to, like, the Windsor-Mountbatten thing of, like, it's so hard to tell how much that is just, like, pettiness of, like, I don't want to change the Windsor name to be, like, would that actually affect the, like, strength of the monarchy? if they had gone with Mountbatten. It's just so interesting because I feel like we have so little, like, we don't know if this is true or, like, we don't, in America, like, we would never have this as a conflict or any, like, idea that to, to think about. I don't know. Like, were they right? The I, I mean, it's right? hard to say because it was so long ago and I think, you know, tradition was so... um kind of associated with the idea of stability back then. Like nowadays, if you told me that like, you know, when Charles or William or whoever, you know, steps into the crown, if they suddenly make an announcement and say like, hey, we're actually uh, bulldozing Buckingham Palace, we're going to put up some townhomes and we're going to live in one of them. I'd be like, cool. Yeah. I mean, you call the shots here, man. (laughs) (laughs) The flip side of Edward, because I feel like there's part of us that sympathizes with him. The flip side is obviously he's such a dick. Like he has nicknames for everybody. He's he's over here writing salty letters to his wife. Like he's just not a likable person in this episode. Yeah, he's really not. I don't like I said, I'm just always like pro queen mother here and like I felt really bad for her. Like she's getting like a viciously attacked in these letters. And then you just have that one shot of her like crying at the funeral and you just get this sense that she's just like I don't know. I feel like she was getting attacked this episode and I'm like, no, she doesn't deserve this. She didn't deserve that nickname. <laughs> so so here's what I'm curious about. Uh, and again, we're never going to find out what's truly historically accurate here or not, um, mostly due to lack of trying. But like we got to essentially, you know, hear him read that uh, letter as a narration. I-, I do wonder if that like letter was itself a creative liberty or if that was something that was like dug up by historians later on, which means that somewhere out there, like the royal family got to actually like have access to this letter and, and hear it just like the rest of the public did. And I-, I-, I love the idea of that being out there in the open for them to eventually read. But even though it was obviously meant for a private audience. I really hope that letter exists and all of his letters in his collection. Yeah, because how how else do you know about the nicknames then? Well, they said that I think that Queen Mother knew and must have, if it is true that Queen Mother told Elizabeth her nickname, but then why would Elizabeth make that public? I don't know. Maybe it's just like it's passed down and like William spilled beans at one point. That's interesting though. Yeah, you wouldn't think they'd share that. Someone worked in the palace and just uh, gave Peter Morgan some info. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These nicknames are brutal. Yeah, like you mentioned, he, uh, he, he calls his sister-in-law Cookie because, oh my God, I wrote this down, but basically it boils down to that she's fat and she smells like a cook or something like that. They're like very mean nicknames. He calls uh, Queen Elizabeth um, Shirley Temple, I guess he says because of her precociousness, but it seems more like a drag. He's he's pretty brutal with these names. He is. It just occurred to me now that Cookie over there doesn't mean what it means here. Oh, that's true. Oh, what, yeah. would they, what would they be there? A, <laughs> like a like I remember thinking, oh, oh, Cookie's actually a really sweet nickname. Like, why why are people getting upset about that? And I'm like, oh, just dawned on me. Yeah. So really, we get the full range of emotions from Edward here. And at the end of the episode, he gets back on a boat and goes back to America. Is that right? This is only really a one-episode mini-arc for Edward here? 
yeah, I mean, I, I didn't get the sense that he was going to be sticking around. I mean, he, he was in town for the funeral and, and also to cement his, uh, you know, continued financial support from the royal family. Um, and he, he got what he wanted and, and then peaced out. And I, I imagine neither him nor the rest of the family are uh, upset about him leaving town at the end. So let's let's then switch gears a little bit to one of the other plots of this episode, and that is the Liz and Phil drama, where mm. Phil really wants them to have his last name, which isn't even his real last name. As we learn, his real last name is... Schleswig Holstein Sonderberg Luxburg of the Royal Houses of Denmark and Norway and latterly of Greece. A full seven-second-long last name. So when 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 this when the series began, we saw him renouncing this uh, original family name and all the titles associated with it. So th- th- does that also just kind of automatically affect the rest of the family? Like, it are is everybody that ever had that last name now Mountbatten? I guess. I mean, maybe they all don't want to have like the you know associations of um that really long name. <laughs> I'm not even attempt to say. But yeah, I guess so because I think Dicky Dicky was here, right? Dicky he, he was Dickie the one raising the toast. Dicky you know. was referenced. I thought the one delivering the toast was actually Philip's father. Yeah, I, I could be wrong. You know I have him in my nose as Daddy Mountain. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who's dead in his family? He seemed he referenced a lot of them dying in a plane crash. That was his, that was was that one of his sisters died in a plane crash. <laughs> one of his sisters, yeah, which oh. which is so bizarre because that uh, I, to go on a tangent here, like Philip is now really excited about taking flying lessons, but he references that his sister died in a plane crash, which which was very bizarre to me. Um, and yeah, while all of this Liz Philip drama is happening, and again, he has like something that he's really invested in here, which is trying to get his. Um, uh, you know, name passed on to the children and the rest of the royal line. But like one of my favorite moments of the episode is while Elizabeth is just, um, you know, overcome with uh, all of this uncertainty and stress from all of this, suddenly Philip saunters in and he's like, I have some news. I want to take flying lessons. <laughs> so that's half of his uh, request. So he wants Liz to really make two requests on his behalf. One is about the name. And the other one is that he wants to stay at Clarence House, which was the house that he has spent the last two episodes really trying to make a home that he now is being asked to vacate. And so these feel like very like minuscule requests at the end of the day, but they are shot down very strongly. Which again, I just think it's funny. I think that his entire, like everything he has tried to do are technically such minuscule things. And, like, he just gets constantly reminded that everything he does <laughs> doesn't matter. I mean, it's sad. It's, I don't know. It's, it's very interesting going into these because you always, like, go through the moral quandary of, like, what would I do if I was somehow in that position? And, like, you were going to lose your last name and you were going to lose this house that you have been renovating to go have to live at Buckingham Palace, which it's, you know, it's big, but no offense, it looks really ugly. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. All the scenes that took place at uh, Clarence house had, uh, you know, much, they were much warmer and and felt much more inviting than anything we've seen occur in Buckingham Palace up until now. Um, But yeah, Philip, uh, you know, he, he makes it very clear that, you know, amid all of this, he feels very emasculated. Like he, (laughs) 
doesn't get to, you know, call any of the shots regarding, uh, you know, his family, um, whether that's where they live or literally what their last name is going to be. But again, it just kind of goes back to this whole thing of like, dude, how did you not know that you were signing up for this? It all seems to come as such a surprise to him that he has so little power or influence. And I I don't know, like, did he just not understand the terms of the marriage that he was getting himself into? I really think he didn't. He's at the end of the episode. He's like, you know, pouting in a chair going like, what kind of marriage is this? I thought we were in this together. He clearly did not read the fine print on (laughs) whatever he signed in this marriage. Truly, I it just makes it so hard to feel bad for this man because I'm like, sir, you knew Bertie even told you like two episodes ago. Like it wasn't even like he hadn't gotten a single reminder. Like he had some reminders along the way. And it's just I don't know. It's sir, you could go back to Clarence's house. Like I'm pretty sure they all travel between like five different houses at all times. Like if you just sequester, you know, you do your your, you know, needed little appearances at Buckingham and then just, you know, pull the kids to the other house. It's just interesting how uncreative that man is. Now, now granted, I, I do think that it is very irresponsible of uh, not just Philip and Elizabeth, but kind of the royal family in general to in, to allow so much money to be invested in the renovation of Clarence House. Because like, if what does it get used for now? Like, I know they go around between, like, like you said, five to 50 different houses at any given point <laughs> in the year. But like Clarence House, like I, I got I got the sense that it was not too far from Buckingham Palace, that it was like in London or somewhere um, nearby. And, you know, will it even have a primary resident now moving forward? And if the answer is no, then I mean, yeah, gosh, they spent a lot of money renovating that place that will now serve no meaningful purpose. Yeah, wait, didn't they know that Birdie was dying for like years? I guess they just really wanted to give Philip something to do. They did remove his lung, so they they must have known something. You don't just remove a healthy person's lung. They didn't prep anyone for anything. Like, did Elizabeth (laughs) even get like proper queen lessons in those last two years? Well, there is this really great scene at the end, toward the end of this episode, where our buddy Tommy um, is kind of uh, standing over Elizabeth as she's, you know, sitting down, going through all of the, um, you know, reports and and letters that she received, and and him, you know, be very patiently uh, kind of walking her through and explaining what everything is. Um, uh, I, you know, I think when we discussed the previous episode, we talked about how most of us are pretty pretty much team tommy in the sense that like you know he may not be the most charming and warm and charismatic person but he seems to be a pretty um pretty good at his job and and pretty good at you know kind of uh making sure the trains run on time and uh you know we we saw that in action here yeah so i guess switching over to switching gears over to liz a little bit so those two requests from philip really act as a kind of vehicle to show liz sort of grow into this position as queen because we really see two different versions of Queen Elizabeth at the beginning and the end. Because at the beginning, Phil is like, hey, you need to go make these requests to Winston Churchill, and she can't do it. She can't get a word in. She doesn't even know that she's not supposed to let him sit down or eat ever. Um, And (laughs) at the end, here she is, you know, demanding that Winston listen to her. So it really is an interesting way for her to sort of come into her own. Yeah, for sure. I do. I never feel like, did you guys feel like you got a sense of like what Elizabeth's actual opinions were about these issues? That's the one thing I wasn't sure about. Like, 
what what did she actually think of Buckingham Palace and what did she actually think about the Windsor name? Because I feel like we get a lot of like Philip telling her like, oh, didn't you all, don't you also hate Buckingham Palace? But it's like, does she? I don't know. So I, I think regarding the family name, she, I mean, I, at times she came across as somewhat ambivalent, but I, I, I think more than anything, she kind of saw and and understood and and empathized with both sides of the debate because you know she wanted to do right uh, by Philip and throw him this bone, but she also understood and appreciated the pressure that she was under to you know continue maintaining tradition and and uh, keep the Windsor name going, which which actually somewhat confused me because they referenced that there was like the Windsor Act of 1917 and that's when that ha- family name was established, and I'm like. Okay, so that's all of what, like 25 years of, you know, <laughs> history. That doesn't seem like it's that long running. Like you can you can abandon this train pretty early here. Um, but uh, regarding moving into Buckingham Palace, I think she was definitely on Philip's side on that one. Like she knew how, uh, you know, big and empty and drab of a building it was. And, you know, again, we all saw the Clarence House scenes like they everything there looked really nice. And I, if I were Elizabeth for, you know, selfish purposes, I would want to stay at Clarence house too. Mm-hmm. Ivan, that's super interesting that you had that take on Elizabeth, because I feel like my take on Elizabeth in this episode was very different. She struck me as somebody who was just very impressionable. And it was like the last person to say something to her was the person who would get their idea implemented. Right. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with that. Because I feel like ultimately at the end of the day, she the last thing we really see from her is her asking uh, David for his opinions. And then his opinions are the ones that she ultimately goes with. Whereas, you know, in the beginning of the episode, we see Philip being the one in her ear all the time. And, you know, maybe a little bit of um, her mom or, you know, the queen mother squared. But, but yeah, that was kind of what I thought of her resolve in those situations. Yeah, I, I found it uh, really interesting that she actually uh, sought out uh, David's opinion because, uh, you know, on one hand, I just expected her to kind of stand with the rest of the family and kind of keep him at an arm's length away. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, I think I recognized, you know, in that moment that she knew that she was kind of in over her head with this new job and she was l- looking at and having lunch with the only other person in this world still living that has actually occupied her, uh, you know, position. Uh, so it would make sense that she would kind of turn to him for guidance because, you know, it's probably very rare for a, uh, you know, monarch currently in that position to actually have anybody to seek out advice from. Yeah, I thought it was a nice irony. Like we're paint like the audience and like all the royal family are kind of painting David in this like negative light. But I like how it's like Elizabeth, who like seems like the most like, you know, like you said, like impressionable and like I don't know. Like if I'm rating her on like the, you know, chaotic n- evil to like lawful good, <laughs> she's really close to like lawful good. Like she's just very at least right now, she hasn't done anything that's particularly like morally interesting so i did like that she was like you know what screw you family like i'm gonna go talk to this man like ivan was saying who knows what she's going through even if it was for like what appeared to be a few months like i like that go elizabeth be crafty and then you know i I, I just thought again i think it's funny whenever philip gets liked in any way short-handed short you know gets the short stick so (laughs) i like that she followed david's advice can we talk about uh, P. 
Peter and Margaret here for a second. I would um, love to. Yeah, that was the what that was kind of what I was hoping we could shift to. Definitely. Yeah. So you know, while all of these other storylines are you know uh, progressing pretty quickly, um, you know, this is the one subplot that has kind of moved at a crawl here for the first three episodes. Like they established pretty early on that you know Princess Margaret is having this affair with uh, Peter Townsend, who is a married man. Since then, not a ton has happened there. Uh, you know, he has uh, found himself a, a new role where he gets to continue working uh, within the proximity of the royal family, even following Bertie's death. Um, but not really a ton else has happened there. Um, you know, there was a scene where she was in his office while Philip showed up to ask for the flying lessons and she had to, you know, hide behind the curtains by the window, which, you know, made for a kind of a cutesy moment. And then later on, um, you know, there was a scene where uh, there was some kind of, you know, concert or opera performance happening where, um, you know, she ran into his office, like, you know, gave him a big kiss and then, you know, strolled out of there with confidence. I, I was really surprised that considering, um, you know, Edward's situation that, you know, given the obvious parallel between their two dilemmas, that there wasn't, you know, some kind of uh, scene between the two of them where, uh, you know, maybe she could confide in him or, or you know, vice versa. But um, yeah, you know, given the, the similar kind of dilemmas that they uh, have found themselves in, uh, yeah, really strange that there wasn't more of an, an obvious connection drawn between the two. Yeah, I, I, my, my big question, I think, about Margaret and Peter is that I have no idea where they are in their relationship. Like, obviously, they've been kind of like having these secret kisses, but like, have they had sex already? Like, I'm very confused about like how serious they are with each other um, yeah. in this moment. I think that they have had implied sex a couple times. Like, I don't know. It's very unclear, like, what the nudity quota is in this series because it. Philip seems to be the only one who gets it. And he didn't get but... it. We saw him and Liz sleeping together, and he was fully PJ'd. Oh, whoa, what happened? I don't sir? know what happened here. <laughs> Is it supposed to be, like, cold out? That's really interesting. I didn't even notice that. But, yeah, I don't know. I feel like they're trying to imply that Margaret has, like, been in a physical relationship with him. The one thing where I'm like, okay, I guess maybe they haven't had any discussions yet is because he, his wife just left him, which was also so blaze, so blaze. Like, excuse me, your wife and children are gone. And you're just like, what was that line where like Margaret is like, I'm sorry. And he's like, Yo, no, you're not. Well, yeah. And then to bring it back to the, the divorce thing, he can't get divorced. He's like, even though she's left him, they can't get divorced because he would be enshrouded in scandal. So while that scene happened, I had a very dark thought, uh, which was, what happens where if instead of him becoming a divorcee, he becomes a widow? See, I think that's when it's okay. And maybe yeah, that okay. is why. Hmm. I wonder how many like royal, not that this happens a lot, but I'm sure it's happened at least once in every, at least this royal line. I, I can't imagine no one's done it yet. I don't know who, maybe someone in the 1800s who's long dead sorry for bringing your memory back up like but yeah no that's true and i don't know if they would ever if that's like the tone they're going for if they would ever discuss it but like you know somebody had to have thought about it at least for a moment oh for sure this is a very uh, uh, you know there's some sketchiness here i mean we got king henry the eighth right like there's a precedent <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah that's true 
so there's two scenes, right? We get Ivan, you mentioned between Margaret and Peter. And in the first one is where she learns about the fact that Peter's wife is going to be leaving him, but it's cut short by the arrival of Philip. And there's this very tense moment with the purse, which she's left on the desk. But Phil is so dense that he doesn't notice until the very end and then doesn't notice that it's his sister-in-law's purse. Should we, well, should, we give, uh, should we give him some leeway here or is he just really dumb? Well, okay, I think you're burying the lead here because the big takeaway f- for me from that scene is that he saw that purse, uh, assumed that Peter was having an affair and just kind of went, ha ha, boy." That's that's true. That does fit Peter. Oh, that does fit Philip's like frat boy persona. That like he, I think he fully supports like every affair that has ever gone on in the Windsor family <laughs> and will go on in the future. That just seems like how he vibes, including any and all future affairs that he will have. Yep. Oh, that's actually really funny. I didn't even. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, what so the flying he... lessons are for. Just just man gossip time. <laughs> Yeah, I I found that moment so strange because, I mean, and it's not like uh, it was just the two of them either. Um, You know, aside from, you know, Margaret in that room hiding behind the curtains, there was also uh, Philip's buddy that was with him. And they, yeah, they were all just kind of like broing down, laughing about the idea of adultery and just being like, oh, you know, boys will be boys. Yeah, no, Philip is pretty dense. Uh, although, uh, do you really think that there's like a world in which he would be able to recognize Margaret's purse? I, I assume she owns quite a few of them. It's true. I mean, I would think that he would not recognize it just knowing Philip. But then again, the reason he might is because he seems to have an eye for detail. And that's why they're letting him renovate Clarence House. But, you know, who knows? The, the the purse didn't have a uh, property of Margaret Windsor uh, <laughs> written in Sharpie anywhere. Uh, it seems it seems not. All right, so yeah, I just want to mention some of these other sort of smaller subplots that the episode seems to be teasing today. And one was the fact that Phil is really starting to resent Charles and Charles's attitude towards sports and really anything that philip loves um i'm assuming this has to become a bigger part of the story down the line correct yeah i feel so bad for this child like he's clearly ready to be like a rich fop and like that would have been like he was born (laughs) to be exactly what he was supposed to be which is a you know a, a, a man who you know does light sport maybe and tends to gardens and renovates houses and owns a horse and I guess goes shooting and doesn't have to do anything with his brain. He was ready to do it. And Philip was like, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I felt so bad for him. You know, I, I honestly did not even pick up on a lot of what you guys are talking about right now. Because for me, the whole time any of those like Charles scenes were happening, I was thinking like, where the hell is Anne? Like, <laughs> does he only spend time with Charles and, and Anne is just, you know, off with the nanny somewhere? I guess. That's a totally fair criticism. I mean... I'm sure Anne can bend it like Beckham too. Yeah, it's like it's it's like you never apparently we never see Anne and we never see Elizabeth really interacting with any of them, <laughs> which she stands at windows a lot to like stare out. I don't understand why she can't go down there. Like, is she not allowed to kick soccer balls? I guess she has to go through the box. She's very busy now. 
I'm going to I'm going to give Elizabeth a pass here. She's got a lot going on, a lot of uh, items to tend to. Philip is supposed to be the stay at home dad here, but he's not taking his job seriously. No, he's not. The other smaller subplot that we got in this episode was the the Winston Churchill subplot where he really is trying to screw Liz over by giving her a 16 month preparation time for her coronation. uh, And that's so that no one will fire him. During that 16-month period, uh, whereas Liz's father just got a five-month preparation period. So, yeah, Winston really flexing here. You're going to have to explain that to me a little bit better. Why does a prolonged like preparation period give Winston job security? It feels like one of those totally arbitrary things to me where out of convention, they won't fire him while he's helping the queen get up to speed. But that was my take on it. I don't know, Carlin, what is that what you were kind of thinking as well yeah like as long as she's like super impressionable and i think that winston is probably banking on the fact that elizabeth feels really insecure right now because she had no preparation and like she has to be ready for this job at a certain time but like once she has the job it's not like i mean she can't get fired anyway but like she could start off on a really bad foot that she like clearly doesn't want to do so i think she's like really ringing in all her resources and like obviously winston has a lot of qualifications in her mind so yeah, I can see Winston being like, yeah, you know, as long as she is not in a very strong, secure position, she's not going to be firing anyone. So so do we interpret this as Winston kind of acting in the interest of pure self-preservation? Or is it kind of going back to this idea of the greater good where, you know, back in episode one, he talked about how critical it's going to be for him to be there for Elizabeth when she takes on the throne and to, you know, kind of nurture her and, and advise her. So, you know, him maneuvering to be able to have that job security, is he doing that purely because he just wants to be PM for the heck of it? Or it, does he think that he's kind of acting in, you know, in service of this greater duty to make sure that Elizabeth is taken care of? I think definitely the former. He definitely sees himself as like the most qualified person to be running the country. He doesn't really trust anybody else to be doing it. But unfortunately, that is not what the rest of his party seems to think. I mean, I'll give him this. I don't think Anthony would do a better job trying to coach Elizabeth. Well, what does the coaching entail? Like, what what does the PM do to prep the monarch for their coronation? I don't know. I don't get why it's not the queen mother or the queen grandmother doing that. Like, someone who had, like, a royal role in some capacity. give Anne something to do. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't know. They really need to clarify who is supposed, like if there's a job that is supposed to be being done and if it's just not being done or if these royals really just get like thrown off a cliff every single time. It's definitely something to keep an eye on, I think, as we move forward. And it seems like we are going to get this full 16 month long period as part of the deal that she had made with Winston, where he would bring up the issues that Philip was requesting with Parliament and with the cabinet, etc., um, all right, last subplot here is we got to go back for a quick second to uh, Daddy Mountbatten because he has several scenes in this episode, one where he's shooting with somebody named Hanover, and then we see Hanover promptly going around behind his back and tattling on him for a toast that he made. This is so petty to me. What is Hanover hoping to gain out of this why is Daddy Mountbatten, you know, so blatantly overconfident? There's a lot. There's a lot to process here. 
I liked that scene a lot. I think I would have liked it more if I had any idea who Hanover was. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I can understand Hanover if he's like a real pro Windsor person. Like, you know, he's like a little, little spy over here. I don't know. Like, to me, if you really cared about the Windsor name, like, I too would be alarmed by that toast. And I guess, yeah, you just go to the real old lady about it. I didn't mind him doing that. I was like, you know what? Mountain Battens are getting way too confident over here. Like, y'all have been a family with your name for like a year. <laughs> well, here's another thing I don't understand. It's like, so they're deciding, you know, which family name is going to be passed on through the, the, you know, the rest of the royal line with the children moving forward. Was that not settled when the children were born? Like, what, like, is their legal name Windsor or Mountbatten? Like, is that not on a birth certificate somewhere already? Okay, I only remember this because I was aware of um the George hype. Do they just get to be prince or princess and nothing else? Do they even have a last name? Do they have first names? <laughs> I don't think they have any of those. <laughs> prince is their first name. Yeah, I don't know. I That's interesting, though, because... I mean, look, I always wonder what happens to, like, I guess they don't all, maybe they just don't go, this generation, I could see them not going to school, but I always wonder about that. Like, what do they get called? Because there's probably a lot of um, Anne's and Charles's. Yeah, I just figured they would have sorted that out once the children were born. Like, you know, I mean, how, like, what did Philip assume? Actually, I don't know. It's like, I, I just want to know what's on the birth certificate right now prior to this debate for any of this to even make sense because you would think that they would have landed on Mountbatten and or Windsor at the time of the children's births. Well, this builds off what we were talking about last episode where it was like, why hasn't Elizabeth thought of her regal name? It's like all of these name things that they haven't talked about. How is this, how is this possible that this is the first time this is coming up? Yeah. Charles is going to be really surprised when Elizabeth dies one day and he has to start thinking about all of these things. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So those, I think, are the major plot points that we got in this episode. So I think we had, what, like three main plots and three subplots? A ton of stuff going on. Um, Lots going on. Yeah, we're really starting to pick up here after, you know, we really kind of eased into it in episode one. But I like the pace that we're going at right now. Yeah. Ivan, what did we learn in this episode? Oh, man. I mean, we learned a lot, um, a, a lot about the family traditions and expectations and, and customs. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, a, a ton about just like the arbitrary rules that the royal family is bound to, but maybe not necessarily bound to, like maybe Elizabeth can change it, but people won't let her or they're pressuring her not to. Uh, you know, we, we just learned about that the fact that there's pettiness in this family just like there is in any other family and yeah royals they're just like us <laughs> carlin anything else that we learned in this episode i i learned that charles actually has really good aim oh that's a good one. Oh yeah <laughs> real good come aim. Back to if he just applied himself you know <laughs> he could be he could be soccer's next big thing let's see so this wasn't quite as kinky an episode as the first two episodes, but I do think that there are several key contenders in this episode um, to talk about today. Shall we go through some of the nominees? For the Kinky Crown Award? Correct. All right, let's do it. All right, Kinky Crown Award for episode three. The nominees are, uh, number one, Margaret barging into Peter's office for a passionate kiss and then walking away, um, leaving him very confused. Edward calling his mother mummy for an hour. 
Also, we have Liz giving Phil some sex eyes through the window while he plays soccer with his son. Then we have Liz forcing Winston to stand and starve through every single meeting that they have. Hmm. We have Daddy Mountbatten comparing rifle sizes with Hanover, um, which is clearly some sort of euphemism. And then we have uh, Liz implying that keeping her husband's libido in check is a matter of national interest. <laughs> wow. You read so many of those things <laughs> in a different way than I did. Um... This is the purpose of the Kinky Crown Award. Did we have any additional nominees to, to add to consideration? Uh, no, I think you've exhausted every <laughs> last possible option. Oh my God. All right, Carlin, where do we go here? Who, who is your vote for the Kinky Crown Award this week? I, I have to vote for, um, Elizabeth and Winston over here. I don't know that, that one's hardcore. <laughs> Ivan, what about you? What do you think? Oh man, well, uh, I'm going to be very vanilla here and say just a kiss between Margaret and Peter, um, yeah, I mean, she was definitely asserting herself uh, in that scene, and it was uh, it was a great moment for her. Um, and you you mentioned that uh, it probably left Peter confused. I, I don't think that's the word that I would pick to describe <laughs> the state that he was in following that kiss. But, I would agree. Confused um, was a very general, you know, generous term for me. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I just think it was a, a great moment in. Um, you know, a romance subplot where we honestly had not seen that many great moments uh, up until now. So that's my vote. I agree. As much as I would like to debut the fancy spinner that I just found online, I'm going to have to agree with Ivan on this one and just go very vanilla with the Margaret and Peter kiss. Um, it got the full like slow motion walk with the music building up behind it. So I think, you know, Margaret, congratulations. You have won your first Kinky Crown Award here in Season 1, Episode 3 of The Crown. I, Philip, I you'll get there one day. It's great. <laughs> Philip, one day you will get what you deserve. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. Did we have any opinions on whether or not there was another ruler who could have perhaps done a better job than Elizabeth in this episode? Ooh, um... All right, I'm just going to open it up with a controversial uh, pick. Uh, King Edward VIII, also known as David, Duke of Windsor. <laughs> you would have rather seen David reinstated in this situation. Not necessarily reinstated. I, I just wish that he wasn't bound to that, you know, silly can't marry divorcees law uh, to begin with. Uh, it, it, it seems like had he remained in the crown and not forced, uh, you know, Bertie to take on uh, the role just would have been better for everyone all around. And can we just say very plainly, like, I don't think that David killed Bertie. He was a very, very heavy smoker. <laughs> he smoked very, yeah. very, very much. Marlboro Reds killed Bertie. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, agree to disagree, Queen Mother Mary. She loves her metaphors. <laughs> I don't know. I like that take, Ivan. I think that, you know, if I... King Edward had been the monarch in this situation, it would have been a very interesting situation. I will say, though, and again, maybe this wasn't shown, but he didn't appear to have children, so I don't know if that would have been a problem down the line. Just going to throw that out there. Maybe they didn't show them, but I'm just saying he seemed to have a lot of pugs. I guess, like... He has three pugs. <laughs> Prince Pug could be next in line. Oh, my God. So much disrespect. Pugs are late. What did she say? They're lazy... They yap and they're gassy. 
How dare she insult the rat dogs I take like offense that. To that? Just rude. Just very rude, Liz. Come on now. Like, what's the difference between a pug and a corgi, really? Okay, but wait. Every time those corgis show up, I get so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy that they showed up. Because they they're the only likable characters in the show. <laughs> yeah. Every single human will go below those corgis for me. Like, I'm sorry. They can do no wrong. <laughs> Super fair. All right. Uh, do we have any closing thoughts on season one, episode three, Windsor, before we close this out here today? Uh, no, I think it was a great episode. Um, I yeah. think it, uh, you know, set up a lot um, for, you know, future family drama and, and kind of petty affairs. And uh, yeah, look forward to more. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So that takes us to a close here on season one, episode three of The Crown Windsor. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you liked this, definitely follow us on social media. You can find the podcast at Crown Around Pod on Twitter. There's something in it for you, too. If you did not agree with who we selected as the Kinky Crown Award winner, Every week we set up a poll so that you can go on and vote for who you thought was the Kinky Crown Award winner. Uh, I believe at the time of this recording, the poll from last episode, season one, episode two, has not closed quite yet, but Winston and Venetia bath time is currently in the lead. So thank you all for fact-checking us. That was definitely a very high contender on the list uh, that just didn't get the votes from the three of us, but we definitely see where everybody is coming from on that one. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to any of our earlier episodes, if for some reason you just dropped into episode three, no worries. You can find all of our older episodes at our website, www.paginatedmedia.com slash crowning around or on any platform where podcasts are available. Coming up here on Paginated Media, we have uh, some very exciting projects. So on Tuesday, um, we will be back with another episode of The Outfit Repeaters, an unofficial Lizzie McGuire recap podcast in which Ivan actually will be joining us to recap Season 2, Episode 15, Lizzie in the Middle, the Frankie Muniz episode. And then Thursday, a week from today, we'll be back here at Crowning Around with yet another recap. This time we will be recapping Season 1, Episode 4, entitled Active Gods. So we're very excited. Hope you join us next time. In the meantime, stay well, and we hope to see you then. God save the Queen. God, God save, save the Queen. The queen.